0: Welcome to Connected Intelligence, a podcast about all the things we bring to work that aren't actually about the work. Join us in conversation about the building blocks that bring complex ideas to life not the code, calculations, or research, but the bonds between teammates, connection to your purpose, and the character that you build along the way. Welcome back. I'm your host, Sonia Senek, and this episode brings back our recurring segment going viral with Dr. Rosella, because the list of things we bring to work sometimes includes viruses. The COVID-19 pandemic has transformed how and where we work and made us all aware of the importance of public health. So we invite epidemiologist Laura Rosella to chat about the state of global public health. In this episode, we go back in time to explore the insights learned from the 2003 SARS outbreak, 2011 H1N1 outbreak, and how these lessons informed our response to COVID-19. A little about our guest, Professor Laura Rosella is a Canadian epidemiologist and associate professor at the Dalhousie School of Public Health at the University of Toronto, where she holds the Canada Research Chair in Population Health Analytics. Laura is the Principal Investigator and Scientific Director of the Population Health Analytics Lab. She's a member of the Royal Society of Canada's College of New Scholars and the inaugural Stephen Family Research Chair in Community Health at the Institute for Better Health for Trillium Health Partners. Laura has authored over 250 peer-reviewed publications in the areas of epidemiology, public health, and health services research. Her work has been featured in major news outlets such as Forbes, Newsweek, Reuters, CBC, CTV, The National Post, The Globe and Mail, and the Connected Intelligence podcast. Laura has an incredible way of simplifying complex public health situations. We learn about the origins of the Public Health Agency of Canada, Public Health Ontario, and whether or not Laura went to sars stock. Please enjoy Going Viral with Dr. Rosella, season four edition. Laura, welcome back to the podcast. We're so excited to see you. Thank you, Sonia. Happy to be here again. We're doing something a little different today with the podcast. Instead of talking about current affairs public health, we're going to roll back the tape and reflect on learnings from past public health crises in our world and in Canada. And so what I thought would be interesting is if you could rewind back to 2003 when SARS hit in Toronto. And share with us what were you researching at the time and how did you experience SARS from a public health perspective?
1: So, really interesting. This was uh, SARS OG, as it's sometimes called. I was a student, I was not an epidemiologist yet. I was just getting into my graduate degree in epidemiology. And uh, I, I was in the middle of it. So it was so interesting because during our classes, we actually had uh, leading epidemiologists and infectious disease doctors come speak to us about the experience as they were going through it. And uh, I, for a second, you know, I went into epidemiology for lots of reasons. You, You know, we've talked about that, but in that moment, it was just very striking because I thought, wow, this is actually what it's all about and we were experiencing it real time as I was studying it.
0: So you were studying it and also in 2003 of course 50 cents into club was the top song of the year. Just so, just so everyone can just yeah. imagine what that year was like Facebook wasn't even launched yet social media didn't exist yet so the speed of connectivity between folks was so much less as well. So how did SARS originate? Like I'm so curious to understand how Toronto became such a hub for SARS at that time. It's
1: Yeah, it's really interesting, actually, because only a few uh, cities became hotspots outside of Guangdong province, where it originated in China. So what had happened was there was a male physician that was infected in Guangdong. He was taking care of these patients with atypical pneumonia. That's what they were calling it, severe uh, atypical pneumonia, and they named it severe acute respiratory syndrome syndrome. He eventually went to Hong Kong to a hotel. Uh, I believe he was ha- there was an event there, and at that hotel there were people from all over the world, including okay. a 78 year old Canadian woman, and uh, many people got infected. And that's where it pretty much went back to a, a number of other countries. That hotel outbreak was very significant. There was 12 people infected there, and went back to several countries. And so that woman came back to her home in Canada, uh, became very ill, uh, her son was very concerned, she she deteriorated quite quickly, he became ill, they both ended up in an emergency room uh, in Toronto, he subsequently died, mm-hmm. and that was the origins of SARS-CoV-1 in Toronto.
0: And when you look back at the way the response was handled, what do you feel worked really well at the time because it seemed to really stay contained in Toronto.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you were you were taking us back to that time and I wanna take people back even to what it was like to walk into a hospital. If you remember in 2003, walking into a hospital, there was no Purell at the front door. Uh, no, very few people would be wearing masks. It would be very unusual to see someone masked. Uh, there weren't any screening questions. If you feel ill, don't come visit your relative. You know, when people had babies, the whole family would show up in the in the room. You know, it was a completely different uh, situation, and it was completely different for healthcare workers. So, one of Um, The reasons why things stayed so contained. So it wasn't necessarily a great place for infection control. That's the point I'm trying to make. But one of the reasons it stayed so contained is just the way that um, SARS-CoV-1 transmitted was quite different. It really was about close direct contact and high contact with patients. So most of the people that got infected were healthcare workers or anyone that was in very close contact with these very sick patients. And that happened very quickly. In fact, a number of healthcare workers died, Um, family doctor and two nurses died. It really sent shockwaves throughout the healthcare system. It was very uh, tragic. And so the focus really was that in hospital spread, and so when when we say yes, not a lot of people were infected. Probably ten, you know, less than ten thousand people all over the world, but there was you know four hundred thirty people uh, in Canada over that, and forty four died, and a lot of them were in the healthcare settings and thought to be preventable if we just had the right infection control procedures in place. So people that look back will say, well, it wasn't a lot of people, but a lot of people actually look back on it as a very Uh, tragic time in public health and infection control in our country.
0: So a lot of our listeners will have COVID-19 in their mind as context for how things are transmitted. As a reminder, the mode of transmission for SARS-CoV-1, you said it was close contact, very, very different than SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19, which was airborne. Can you speak a little bit about the difference?
1: Yes. And the airborne transmission was recognized very late, even for COVID-19, which was a problem, by the way. So close contact, meaning in contact with droplets. So when people think, you know, that picture, I think everyone's seen with the sneeze and all the stuff that comes out, um, uh, you know, you really have to be in contact with the droplets that come out of the human. And then you have to somehow get those droplets in your system, touching your face. And if you're doing very invasive procedures, these patients were very sick. They could not breathe. They had to be intubated. Um, you know, you're, you're in direct contact uh, with those patients in many ways. So very close contact. And many uh, viral infections are spread that way. They're probably, I think what we're realizing now, there's there may be an airborne component, but it wasn't, it was small compared to COVID-19, which obviously has a large airborne component. So if you just have to be in a room with someone to get infected, like COVID-19, then uh, that really obviously makes transmission much more difficult, much more difficult to control, and many more people exposed.
0: So what was mishandled? Or what did we learn from the SARS experience in 2003?
1: Yeah, we we learned a lot, actually, um, and a couple key things. So actually, there was a report commissioned led by Dr. David Naylor following uh, SARS experience in Canada. And a lot of those learnings were documented very well in that report and recommendations were taken up. But a few things. Uh, were realized about our system, a lot of weaknesses about our public health system. So data is one of them. I, I'm going to say them and you're going to say, well, that's still a weakness today. Um, we did not have a centralized electronic data lab system. So it was very difficult to know, you know who is tested, who is infected, and use that information in real time to inform the response. So our data capacity at that point, you know, far, far be behind what we have today, and definitely not sufficient. Um, the lab testing piece. It was really interesting. Um, you know, when you look back at some of the writings about that, people are talking about. You know, we didn't have a, a rapid test to determine if it was flu or uh, SARS-CoV-1, and. Uh, we're still talking about that today. So, you know, the ability to quickly diagnose and have that testing capability just didn't exist. Uh, we didn't have a strong rapid immunization strategy. That comes up again when we talk about H1N1. And then the the most important is that we actually didn't have a separate public health agency. Uh, and many people will recognize, you know, Public Health Agency of Canada or provincial public health agencies that we have now didn't exist. We, we didn't have a CDC equivalent. It was bucketed within our other health agencies, which also take care of health care, which takes up most of their time. And so uh, we really needed dedicated attention, need to be arm's length, need to be away from government, Um, And so those were the main learnings that we saw. I'll also say even the global nature of the spread of this disease. I mean, we always know about this and we talked about it, but even now think about, I I talked about walking into a hospital, think about talking, walking into an airport now feels really different, right? Night and day. Yeah. So that, that other piece I think was uh, another really important learning, just how global we are and how much that that's an important point for us to focus on.
0: To try to invigorate the city of Toronto, there was Molson Canadian Rocks for Toronto. It's a benefit concert. Five hundred thousand people attended, which is still the largest outdoor ticketed event in Canadian history and one of the largest in North American history. It was more informally known as Sarsstock. We had Rush and ACDC, the Guess Who, Justin Timberlake. Did you go to Sarsstock?
1: I did not. <laughs> was it
0: too early? Was July thirtieth, two thousand three, too early to have sars stock?
1: Well, so here's the thing that's really interesting is that most of the risk was happening in healthcare settings. There was not the concern for public gatherings um, that there was, even though, you know, they probably should be, it just wasn't on the narrative. Um, For me, it it just seemed a bit odd. Uh, I think I struggled with it for a number of reasons because... You know, Toronto got a real black mark during the 2003 SARS outbreak. And what happened was all of a sudden, people were putting us on lists saying, don't go to Toronto. They're experiencing this SARS outbreak. And that was a big shock everyone was scrambling saying like, that doesn't happen. Toronto doesn't get on lists for infectious disease outbreaks. That probably has never happened or it hasn't happened for, you know, decades or even a hundred years. So people scrambled. And the first reaction was, Oh, we need to get people back and tell them we have everything under control.
0: And those those Canadians are so nice.
1: They're so nice. I mean, (laughs) they're the nicest, nothing happens there. It's just a great place to go. But, um, And I thought that that was a curious first reaction. I understand it, Um, but it really was, you know, we need to get people back and tell them we're okay. And um, there was actually two waves. So one thing I didn't mention with the SARS outbreak is most countries experienced one big wave. We experienced our first wave and then we had a second wave, again, concentrated in healthcare settings if many people would say that was largely preventable, it was a loosening up of restrictions too early in the isolation, the PPE and healthcare settings. And so we just saw right before our eyes what happens if we let let our foot off the gas too early and, and we were going in. Um, so I certainly had mixed feelings about it and I wasn't sure if it was the most important thing to focus on, but I did Obviously, love. I love my city and I felt bad that we were getting this negative publicity and uh, it was nice to see people rally together, but it was complex for me, for sure.
0: It's probably also complex for Justin Timberlake. I don't know if you remember. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he was part of a very hard rock concert with the Flaming Lips and ACDC. And so I think the crowd was there to see them. And then they put Justin Timberlake in that set in the evening. Uh. And so there was a lot of fans that were not as. Yeah. And this is like his Crimea River phase. Yeah. Anyway, okay. So fast forward to 2008, the WHO raises the pandemic level for H1N1 or the swine flu. So before we go into this, why was it called the swine flu?
1: Yes, it was called the swine. I mean, most of these pandemic, we've talked about this, these pandemic viruses really originate when they jump from animals to humans. So in this case, it originated in a pig um, and jumped to a human. So that's why it was called the swine flu. And uh, it was called that for a very long time. Yeah. Really, really interesting. I haven't seen a virus be attached to its animal host reservoir for that long, but that name stuck for whatever reason. And it originated in Mexico. So different uh, part of the world and um, swine flu stuck for a very long time. I saw that name in the headlines for uh, many
0: months. And we, so at that time, we, we have all these learnings now, you know, 2003 is six years ago. There's these new agencies in Canada. Do they help or hinder our response to H1N1 at the time?
1: Yeah. So let me paint a picture how much things have changed. So for me personally, I graduated uh, and I was working as an, uh, as an epidemiologist at the uh, provincial public health agency, the one that was created, one of the ones that was created um, as a result of, of the SARS uh, report. And uh, we definitely bolstered our infection control procedures in hospitals. We have more established protocols on isolation. I should also mention this is a different virus, right? SARS was a coronavirus. This is an influenza virus. And uh, we had been doing pandemic preparedness for a very long time. Canada had plans for pandemic pr- preparedness based on influenza. We did not have one for coronavirus. We didn't see that coming.
0: Can I um, ask you before yeah. we go further, the difference between the a coronavirus and influenza for our listeners in the, in the simplest way?
1: Yes. Both uh, respiratory virus Think of one, uh, coronavirus is most uh, commonly related to the common cold. So people will, you know, can associate, you know, what they feel like during a common cold, the types of viruses they get, and the other ones, uh, influenza. Uh, So it it infects the body quite differently. The key distinguishing factor of influenza that's important uh, for people to know is that it um, evolves very quickly. That's why we need flu shots every year. So we know it's sort of rapidly changing. Um, And then it has different effects on the body that coronaviruses do. But in terms of their modes of transmission, I think we're seeing there's a lot of overlap now. Again, because 2003 SARS saw that very close droplet spread, I think we were anticipating that in the beginning for COVID-19 and then realized very quickly that it was acting much more like influenza. So we now have uh, better lab capacity, we have better uh, surveillance systems in place. We actually have plans for what to do when there's an influenza pandemic um, because we've been thinking about that for many years. Um, and so, when this came onto on to the the scene, we were somewhat better prepared um, in a number of ways. Uh, we definitely had um, more protocols in place at the hospital level as well. So, um, I was. Uh, they're investigating this. We were doing various um, studies to understand who, who gets the most sick. Uh, Are there specific risk factors? Does this behave like other flu? What happens uh, with flu vaccines, prior flu vaccines, et cetera? Um, So we were busy doing um, all of those investigations. And actually, I took the opportunity to do a study, which I've talked about this study earlier that really changed uh, my life, changed my perspective as an epidemiologist. I tried to understand how evidence was used during the various decisions that need to be made during H1N1. I'm in the middle of a public health emergency. This is my chance. It was always my bugaboo as someone who was more on the technical side, more on the modeling side, more on the data side. I want to know how people use decisions and why aren't they using them the way I want them to was my (laughs) main motivation. And then uh, these studies and document analysis um, about how people use evidence during that was really enlightening. I learned a lot and changed the way way I think about evidence during
0: public health of emergencies. And your role at the time, Laura, were you at Public Health Ontario at the time?
1: Yes, I was uh, an epidemiologist and I... Uh, was leading a few studies that were key for the response.
0: And this study that you did, what was your biggest insight from researching how decisions were made at the time, aside from the decision to go see Slumdog Millionaire, which lots of people did in 2009?
1: Yes. Thanks for for, uh, culturally putting us where we were at that time. It's it's hard to remember. Uh, Great movie um so three ways people make decisions uh was really the big thing that came out for me um and the first one is there's people that make decisions based on evidence so we wait for that very high quality scientific evidence like this is what I do as a scientist i really try and make evidence as rigorous as possible the best data the best models and um So in principle, this sounds good, right? We don't make decisions unless they're backed by the best evidence. The problem is during emergency that evidence doesn't always exist. And actually waiting for it to come can be very problematic. So you can get yourself in a situation if you say, well, we only make decisions based on the highest quality evidence that you're frozen when the, the best evidence doesn't exist. So that was the problem with that one. So that was the first thing that came out. The second kind of people um, or group was this policy-based ideology. So evidence is important, but really it's minor. We need to get people back to Toronto and get our economic situation up and running again. And we need to make sure that our uh, healthcare workers are going to come to work and feel safe. And so they're all important things. It's not that these aren't important things, but evidence is sort of a minor piece. And then there's this pragmatic group was more rare. In that you use evidence, and you realize that when you have science, it's really important when you have it. But you have to balance it because sometimes there are other things that come up that, no matter what the evidence, it may not change things. So one example during H1N1 is there was a vigorous debate on N95 respirators and surgical masks in healthcare settings, and do healthcare workers require this? Again, we're still having this debate today. I think it's um, a bit more settled, but. Um, there was uh, nurses were very, the nursing unions were very concerned and remember they're coming from 2003 they've just had two of their nurses die and they're saying we all need n95s the evidence people are saying but we don't actually have the evidence yet right well that actually doesn't matter if they're concerned and they're not going to come to work we need n 95s so that's an example of bringing pragmatism in with evidence and uh, there was a smaller group of, of those individuals.
0: And so there's the strict, we want the hundred percent best evidence before we do anything. There's the policy group of, we need to get the community back on its feet. Let's create policies that make that happen. We don't necessarily need the best evidence. We just need to move. And then that group in the middle of the pragmatic group, when you say there's, it's rare and there's fewer in there, what's the profile of folks that understand how to balance those two? And do you see yourself in that group?
1: Yeah, I definitely see myself in that group. And again, if, had I not done these interviews and talked to all these people, I probably would be in bucket one because I'm a scientist, Right, I, I love evidence <laughs> and I want the rigorous, the most rigorous evidence at all times, but you really start to understand everyone's point of view. You, you just kind of develop empathy of what they're struggling with and actually that they're coming from a good place. Like they care about the population just as much as you do. They're just thinking about it from a different perspective. They're pra- placing value and emphasis on different things. And so definitely I do. Um, and I think actually everyone probably has an element of this in them. It's hard to execute. And the conclusion that I kind of said on the study was in order to execute this, you need credibility and trust. So people need to trust you and stay with you. And you need to be very transparent about, we have this evidence, so we are using it. We don't have this evidence. And so here's the assumptions we're basing it on and we're going this way. And it needs to be explicit. And this is where people fall down. Because if you don't tell people why you're making the decisions you're making, they lose trust. So it's all related. And I think in CDL, RSC, our our rapid screening program, we did this. We try to build that trust right at the beginning um, because we had lots of contact and relationships. And we're saying, listen, this is what we know. Everything was changing. Every week we had a different situation.
0: Sometimes every day,
1: sometimes every day, including the science. And we always led with the science. And when we had it, it was always the primary uh, reason behind the way we were doing things. But when we didn't have it necessarily at the level we want, here's the assumptions or here's even though we have the science, here's the logistical things that are just a reality and being very explicit and transparent about that's very hard to do. I think people feel um, very few people can do this and they feel vulnerable when they're doing this because you're kind of letting people into your mind as you're making decisions. You would much rather come out and say, this is the evidence. It's so clear. And this is what we're going to do. I would rather do that. It's not always the case. You kind of got to be vulnerable and let them in. And that's what I think is hard
0: when we are in that gray area as a society where there's some evidence, but not all, and there are tough decisions that need to be made about personal health, um, you know, is there a bar or how how do you think of, okay, this is a period of time where we really need to lead with evidence and with the science. And okay, now we've shifted into a world where we have enough evidence that people can be informed enough to make their own decisions, because I feel like that was also a bit of a tug of war that we experienced through all all three, you know, SARS, H one N one, and COVID nineteen. Like that was definitely an energetic pull back and forth. So, how do you think about dividing those two realities?
1: It's it's really difficult, um, and but, and I think about this a lot. the The main thing I think about is you always have to reinforce what you know, and. You have to say it again and again and make sure um, people know and they have a place to come back to it because you can't just tell people things once. Um, they need to digest it, they need to think about it, they might need to come Sorry, back. Sorry, what
0: to was it. it that? I'm hey. kidding.
1: Oh, i <laughs> Sonia. Okay. <laughs> uh, you need to tell them again and again. Um, and people need to sometimes aren't ready to hear it the first time. So that needs to come. Um, through in a very consistent manner in it from a trusted source. And so that's why building trust is so important. Um, I, you know, you do need to let people need to be able to make decisions, um, but you also need to be open for a conversation. It's never, here's what it is. Here's what the science says. I'm going away and I'm just going to let you at it and let you see what you want to do with it. It needs to be, and I'm here for you for the conversation and for the questions you have. And even if it's the same question 10 times, I'm here for you to listen and talk talk it through with you. And again, I think that's the piece that's really hard to do when you think of sort of the top-down decision maker saying, this is the decision and that's it. There needs to be those in-between people that actually can translate the evidence and can have the conversations. And it needs to be someone they trust. And what we saw during COVID-19, it worked best with different people. So people may feel more comfortable talking to someone from their own community. And we have to make sure that those people are empowered and they can answer the questions. We're still talking about the same science, but we're not saying it's up to you and there's no resources for you to continue having those conversations.
0: So during those interviews you held with decision makers during H1N1, what were the types of policies that you talked about?
1: So we studied four specific policies that were really, um, you know, highly debated during H1N1. Um, so the first one is vaccine priority. Who should get the vaccine first? Because we can't, we have a, va- you know, very similar to COVID-19. We have a vaccine. We can't get it all at once. Who should get it first? Um, and there's lots of ways to make that decision. It, you It's not just risk. You have to think about ethical and all kinds of value um, situations. So that was the first one. The second one was during H1N1, we used an adjuvanted vaccine. So this is a slight change to vaccines to make their immune response more effective. And they were new. This is a new technology. And so we didn't have as many clinical trials as we had with the old uh, influenza technology. And now it's it's used quite a bit and has an excellent safety profile. But at the time, we didn't have as many trials and particularly among pregnant women. And pregnant women actually were at very high risk from having serious complications for H1N1. There were some really sad um, stories uh, for, for pregnant women during H1N1. So they were a priority group, but we have this sort of new uh, slight change to the vaccine. And then we talked about school closures, which is very interesting as a containment strategy. Again, very controversial. Deja vu. I know, deja vu. And then the N95 uh, respirators, uh, which uh, I mentioned already. So those are the four things we talked about.
0: And did anything surprise you when you learned about these policies more deeply, directly from the decision makers?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So for each one of them, the, you talked about the pull. They were different for each one of them. So on uh, the vaccine, like, again, think about people that are purely evidence-based, policy-based, or this pragmatic group. So uh, the ones that on the evidence-based ones on the vaccine priority, for example, well, let's look at who's at most risk for dying. And let's prioritize those first. That's a pretty logical uh, decision. But then you have to think of other people in the population that might otherwise be vulnerable. Um, other populations that um, may get you know severely affected if if uh, it goes there, even though they might be a younger population. So so that one was a very interesting uh, push and pull. The adjuvant vaccine in pregnant women was very interesting. We had a lot of um, strong opinions on this, as you can imagine. And I think many people were saying, uh, you know, we believe in the safety, we know the the studies are emerging among this specific subpopulation. And because it's so hard, let's let's let the women decide. It's their decision. Wow. And that was really challenging because it's such a hard decision. And, you know, this is almost a situation where you want to lean in more, have more conversations. And I know a lot of uh, obstetricians uh, and midwives had a lot of Uh, they spent a lot of time talking to pregnant women and actually did an amazing job. They were actually the exact right people to do it because they're someone that's obviously invested in the pregnancy and the care of the mother and the baby. And they leaned in to make these conversations and, you know, they weren't necessarily thinking that they would be talking about vaccines when they went into this uh, specialty. Of course they do all the time, but they ended up taking on a major public health role, which was actually, um, which is actually great. But that one was also really tricky about the evidence is coming and it came and it was good, but we, we needed it right now. And what do you do in this, in this kind of gray area?
0: And what would be the source for the OBs and the midwives and anyone supporting the pregnancy process? What would be the source they were, they would be relying on to even start those conversations with pregnant people?
1: Yeah, I mean they were looking at the randomized controlled trials and there was some animal evidence again which was very confusing um, at the time because it, you know obviously it was in it was in rats I think there was a particular study that they were debating back and forth. So they were they were at the table looking at that evidence as well but there were a lot of then groups struck between public health experts, immunization experts, people that study immunization you know, uh, deeply and OBs and midwives. And they were working, you know, eventually working together. And eventually they took a lot of leadership because they knew how to translate it best to that particular patient population.
0: As you were giving that description of the policies you talked about, I said deja vu when you talked about school closures, because that was on the top of everyone's mind between 2020 and 2022. You know, we had rolling school closures. We had months of remote school. And the health impacts for students, as well as the health impacts for families that were managing having their kids at home doing remote school and not able to do sports or extracurricular activities, go to band, it was massive. And so I just want to ask were there any closures at that time? If they were, were they? Minimal or on the volume or scale that we saw for COVID nineteen, and how did they develop those policies at the time?
1: Yeah. So the interesting thing about school closures. So again, I mentioned for pandemic preparedness, we had these documents saying if a pandemic comes, this is what we need, and there's even you know a lot of detail in these documents. This is how many items we need. This is what we have to do. School closures is right up there because everyone assumed in a massive flu pandemic that we'd have to close schools like we had to do during the 1918 uh, influenza pandemic. And so what was interesting during H1N1 is it came up very early and then was uh, basically not seen as a viable policy option very early. Uh, Very different um, than COVID-19, but that's because the virus was very different and the impact on kids was very different. Um, At that time, right away, the societal impact of closing schools was brought to the forefront. And this is where the, you know, based on the modeling, closing schools, would it make a difference? Absolutely. We know it breaks trains of transmission. We know that children are an important source of spread. So from the evidence-based perspective, you can definitely make the case. But there was a lot of discussion of how the societal impact of that and it was ruled out very early on that this did not need to be implemented, given where we were, given how H1N1 was transmitted and the scale of the pandemic at that time. It's very different though for COVID-19, where uh, it was much more um, infectious, we've learned now, and the spread was much more significant, way you know, way more burden, higher cases. So the landscape changed, but that societal trade-off was front and center right away and was discussed very heavily. And actually, you know, was was the, even though we said, this is the things we're going to do when we have a flu pandemic, we're going to decide not to do it. And because we know the societal cost is too high, but that sort of made sense.
0: At the time for H1N1, we did not shut down schools. We talked about it a lot, but we did not shut down schools. We did
1: not. It was a different pandemic. The scale and the impact on the population was much, much less. So it's not that we had the exact same infectious burden on the population. And one time we did, and one time we didn't. You know, we did not have the same burden on the population during H1N1. It was not as infectious, did not infect as many people as COVID-19.
0: And to bring us years into the future, were you surprised by how infectious COVID-19 was And did you ever anticipate that you'd be managing through a pandemic where shutdowns were one of the most effective tools we could use at the time?
1: I definitely was surprised at how infectious SARS-CoV-2 was, definitely, every day. I just was shocked how quickly it spread, the number of countries it infected uh, in that early stage. I'm still shocked. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of incredible, actually. I was expecting something more like H1N1, and we should talk about how our expectations really changed things um after this, because I think uh that was a big part. So I, I'm still to this day shocked at this virus, it's uh, unbelievable. Now, am I surprised at school closures being used as a policy? Absolutely not. Um, because we know that it's one of the most effective tools we have. It's not without cost, though, as you've mentioned, and those things need to be balanced. And when you're balancing societal implications with scientific evidence, going back to what we were talking about before, this is where you need to be talking the most. You need to be saying... This is what the evidence says. We know this is an important tool. It's very effective. When you do the modeling, few things are more effective than these types of closures. However, we know that they also have these side effects. And so we're balancing those. And this is how we're thinking about how we balance them.
0: And it won't last forever.
1: And it won't last forever. And this is why we're doing it this way at this time. And I I do think officials try to do this. I think it was very hard and it was a very noisy environment. There were a lot of opinions. Um, I definitely think they tried. Uh, What what came up in COVID-19, which was different than H1N1, is we had tools, right? So um, I think people were saying, well, are we closing them and using all the tools we have at our disposal? You know, rapid testing, really high quality contact and tracing the technology to improve contact tracing, you know, all the things we know, I think that was the, the bit of a shift of the conversation. We have all these tools at our disposal. Are we using all the tools the best way we can? And then when we've run out of all options, we are closing schools. So I think in the beginning, like there was no question for me that school closure needed to happen. And I think later on, that's when people were wondering if, can we, Use some other um, advances and keep schools open. We know it's effective, but what else can we do?
0: You mentioned that talking and being consistent and transparent is so important in times where you're developing evidence. You may not have all the answers yet. I'm wondering if the asymptomatic spread of COVID 19 was a new part of the conversation with regards to pandemics. So, for example, in SARS or in H1N1, did we have asymptomatic spread? Was it something that we were equipped and established to manage, and not just manage it logistically, but to manage that conversation? Was that new?
1: Yes, and it probably happened to some extent during HN1. It was not documented to happen during SARS 2003. So again, we go into these pandemics saying, okay, what do we know? We know it's a influenza virus. We know it's a coronavirus. what do we know about asymptomatic spread in other versions of those viruses? And then we go into it and then we realize, oh my goodness, it's airborne. There's a lot of asymptomatic spread. I think the asymptomatic spread was a huge part of the infectious nature uh, and why it made it so difficult during COVID-19. That definitely was an important part. And so this is this kind of quagmire that I don't know what the solution is. And maybe the listeners have some ideas where on the one hand, being prepared is a really good thing. Everybody knows that you don't want to be caught off guard. You need to practice, you need to prepare. We did tabletop exercises. On the other hand, what I found in my study with these key informant interviews is that it boxed us in. And once you were boxed into assumptions, it was very hard to get out. So early on, once we were boxed in that coronaviruses aren't airborne, because that's not our experience before, it took us many more months to get over that than we should have. Wow. Because we just like, no, but that's not what we know. And that's not what we have heard for. And it's not it's not unreasonable, right? It's not that the people are just refusing to see it. It just, it puts us into these assumptions. They become entrenched. And then it actually makes us more it makes it more difficult for us to get out of them and takes longer which in, a, in an emergency is really challenging so how do we prepare so that we're ready and we have we're not starting from scratch and, le- and we're learning and we build on what we did which we did a lot of but at the same time how do we remain open to emerging evidence to make sure that we don't get locked into entrenched assumptions because it actually held us back during h1n1 and it held us back during COVID 19.
0: I was going to say, it almost sounds like you have to have a learner's mindset as a group of public health experts when you're managing through this. Because as soon as you get fixed on something, there can be a domino effect that takes so much longer for you to respond. So how do we coach that learner's mindset in our communities?
1: Well, I believe it's about having learners at the table. So you definitely want the experts I mean, 99% of the time, that expertise, that knowledge, that deep knowledge they have from having gone through this before is going to help you. But if someone else is at the table that maybe has a fresh perspective or a different perspective, then they're going to ask a question and, and just remaining open to those questions and listening. And that's what I think was The magic in some of the best policy responses. Again, I'll use CDLRSC as an example. We had multiple perspectives looking at the issue and we did not agree. And many times I would say, you know, as an epidemiologist, this is what I know and this is what the evidence said. And someone that comes maybe from a different disciplinary perspective will say, well, what about this? And then, you know, my job was to be open to say, okay, I need to really think about this answer. I can't just say, because that's what we know from before because we may or may not be in the same situation. Most of the time, what we know from before helps. So I don't wanna make it seem like it's always something new, but the odd time there's these little things like the importance of asymptomatic transmission, the importance of airborne transmission that, and and some of the experts certainly saw this as well. uh, And we're speaking about it very early. Um, So I think it's about having different people at the table as much as possible.
0: An interdisciplinary approach for sure. Absolutely. For our listeners, we had policy experts, economists, data scientists, leaders of large corporations, small businesses, schools, and then... Me, who really just asked the question over and over and over again to Laura, because she was educating me on everything public health related. Me, who I'll say just knew nothing about pandemics, which I think actually really helped. And I think our whole team, who this was new for them, too, was trying to make sense of it. So we were able to ask questions, I think, in a way that kept bringing it to the simplest explanation possible. Looking back now, in hindsight, it was a mechanism that I think helped us. But at the time, we were truly just trying to understand. I
1: think. Absolutely. And you also brought in, how do you operationalize and scale a solution when you have it? And again, not necessarily something that we have expertise in doing. So that was also really critical.
0: Yes. Laura, you and I have talked about the precautionary principle as one of the fundamental tenets of public health. Can you share a little about what that is?
1: So the precautionary principle is this concept, which is really important, that says when you are making a decision, if you don't have the scientific evidence about a particular hazard or anything, um, and the stakes are high, then you err on the side of it might potentially be harmful, therefore we should minimize the harm. So it's this idea of erring on the side of being careful. And protecting people when we don't know yet. And it comes up, you know, during public health emergencies. It also comes up when we have, you know, new environmental hazards, new materials. Um, So we use it quite a bit in public health.
0: Is that where the sentence out of an abundance of caution came from?
1: Yeah. When you hear that sentence, it generally means the precautionary principle is being used in that decision-making.
0: And how has the presence of social media in our world changed how the precautionary principles applied?
1: So the really tricky thing about it is, and it goes again with being explicit, you're, you're saying to individuals, we don't yet know, but because the implications are very high, if we just let this thing go loose, then we're going to act on the side of implementing this policy. The social media angle of it became very difficult because people countered it and people can challenge that principle. Yep. That's always happened. That's not new. But they were then bringing in misinformation and disinformation, which is no, we know actually I'm countering it with this, you know, one line on Twitter or this uh, particular expert which may not be an expert in a particular area. And then you have disinformation where people are actually purposely trying to spread uh, false information, knowing that it's going to fracture the response or d- polarize people, people are doing this on purpose.
0: And it also sounds like they're looking to fracture trust.
1: Exactly. Because what other way do you want to undermine a stability of a society? I mean, that's the way. you under, You start getting at trust and then no matter what you do, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good for the population. So people use this as an approach to fracture the population. And so with social media, I guess before social media existed, people would say out of an abundance of caution, we are going to be, you know, limiting that you know this particular access to this particular hazard or access to individuals um, because we don't yet know, but there's some suggestion might be harmful. So this is what we're doing. And then you you then get the counter on social media quite a bit. It could grow very quickly. Um, And then it could start being spread and shared. And so then there's all of this um, information that has to be countered. And a lot of effort and time to counter it. And it confuses the situation. It fractures trust and it causes a big big problem. And so the precautionary principle becomes more important the less evidence we have because we don't yet know when we're earlier on. And that's also the point where people start establishing different positions. And they start establishing you know, lines of evidence in their own way. And that starts becoming, you know, real for a lot of people. And just like we were talking about before, once you're in that spot saying, this is my reality, it's really hard to get out of it. The evidence comes, I'm now going to talk about what that new evidence says, but I also now have to counter all of that misinformation that was being put out early on. So it really uh, adds a lot of complexity to decision-making.
0: And do you have a suggestion of how to protect the messaging around public health during a pandemic crisis?
1: This is a really tough question, and I don't have a clear answer, but i do I do feel strongly that there does need to be some level of oversight in the extreme cases where you know information is being passed or shared for malicious intent. And again, I don't know what exactly that looks like. I think we're still trying to figure it out. I mean, like we are with everything else in social media. I think we're trying to figure out like, who does it, how does it need to be regulated? Do certain age groups need to be limited now? Like these are all questions that we're having and I see them as the same. I always go back to how important it is to build those trusted bodies. I wrote this in that, in that paper almost 15 years ago. And I still believe it today is that you need to spend time building trust and building relationships. That's a long-term investment that's, that involves listening. And that's not just one structure. It means bolstering, you know, who's the trusted people in the community. There was a lot of amazing community leaders that came out and they became the trusted leader of their communities. We need to be supporting that all along. So for me, it's about investing in trusted, supported relationships That aren't just flying in and out, but they're there and they exist all along. So that even no matter how much noise you get, people will have something to go back to.
0: It sounds like that long-term relationship building, community establishment, and also maybe in the short term, just making sure we have a clear way of authenticating sources or authenticating information in a really dynamic, real-time fashion could be really effective. Absolutely. It's so interesting to learn about your history personally through each of these different pandemics. And it sounds like each one you've built on your learnings and adjusted and flexed the way that you personally see your role. I'm wondering how you envision the future. What do you hope we've learned and embraced from not just COVID-19, but H1N1 and the SARS experience, all of those compound learnings? What do you hope is now in our arsenal going forward? in Canada.
1: I have so many hopes. <laughs> but so the uh the first one I'll talk about on the system level. I mean, obviously you know how important data is to me. Um but these data infrastructure systems are critical and they need to be up and running and properly resourced before the emergency. Right. We get into the situation in public health, and this is a longstanding issue where the emergency happens, then we realize, then we fix it and respond and invest. We need these systems up and running. We need this intelligence and this information that's been a common through all these, uh, through COVID-19, H1N1, SARS, um, and we're still not there. So I really would love to see a robust and well-resourced data infrastructure and it, and the data is being usable for those that need to be made decisions. So not just the data in and of itself, but it's translated, it's visualized, it's digestible. So that's my main Hope I think it's gotten better certainly since the beginning of the story that I talked about, but we're still not there. Um, so that would be my main one on the um, communication side of things. I I really feel that this sort of two way conversation of we need to be constantly talking to the public and everyone really businesses. Um, everyone in society, but we also need to be listening. And those relationships need to be built and established again in peacetime, if you will. So it's really hard to build trusting relationships in the middle of emergency. I mean, in some ways it can bring people together, but what are the structures to do this? And where does it come from? And it doesn't just come from one place. These conversations and these, these trusted communications need to be happening. And now they're happening on social media, which is a whole new thing that didn't exist uh, before. So we really need to bolster those those trusted forums for science communication. And then I would say, um, I really, we, we just talked about the need for these uh, teams and these solutions. There are so many technologies that we can benefit from and they're not getting out. Um, and there's there's lots of reasons why that is. But I I hope we work on some of those barriers so that we can actually use the the best minds, the best technology, the best ideas. I mean, I have the fortune of truly being around the best minds, you know, about talking about so many aspects. And I just wish we could bottle that up and use it in our responses um, a bit better. So we need to build structures to enable that.
0: So, data, trust, interdisciplinary teams and the Toronto Maple Leafs winning the Stanley Cup.
1: You nailed it. I hope the fourth is happening, but we'll see. How do we enable that? That should be a topic of a, one of your future podcasts. Not with me.
0: Interdisciplinary teams. Let's start there. Um, well,
1: probably data, trust. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what builds great teams, right? Let's pivot
0: this podcast right now. Let's go. Some hockey stats. No, I'm kidding. Laura, thank you. This has been Wonderful walk down memory lane for you, I'm sure, with your research, but we so greatly appreciate all of your insights and sharing your stories with us.
1: Thank you, Sonia. It's been an amazing conversation. I really enjoyed uh, thinking through it. Go leaves go. Go leaves go.
2: <laughs> Welcome to The Debrief, the meeting after the meeting. We're joined by your host, Sonia Senek and a couple of her friends from work, Amar Kaur, and me, Elizabeth Chim. Hello. Hi, Sonia. Hi, Sonia.
0: Oh, we got to fix that one.
2: I, I fix every single one of them. Fix it and post.
0: <laughs> we never do this right. So, where do you want to take this?
2: I know where you want to take it. Black Eyed Peas, Burgerlicious, Justin Timberlake, Janet Jackson. Let's go into the time capsule. It, there was
0: a lot of time capsule moments. Yeah. That was the era of Justin Timberlake's Senorita.
2: I don't want to hurt your feelings, Sonia. Oh, no. But in 2003, Amar and I were in elementary school. It's been a year, okay, 2003.
3: I've been in Canada for a year. I've seen my first snow. I almost didn't make it to grade five because the teacher said I should repeat grade four. Oh, no. Justin Timberlake was not top of mind. I'm sorry, Sonia.
2: Justin Timberlake was pretty top of mind for me at that age. That's (laughs) okay. okay. (laughs) Okay. And then just for a time check for all of us and our listeners. So when COVID happened in 2020, the top...
0: Lady Gaga featuring Ariana Grande, Rain On Me.
2: I know that was your top song, Sonia, (laughs) but apparently from the billboards, the top song was Blinding Lights by The Weeknd.
0: Oh, Really? So in the COVID years, we went from The weekends Blinding Lights. We need to see it all the way through now. What was 2021?
2: Levitating by Dua Lipa.
0: I believe that that should have been the top song of 2021. I agree. (laughs)
2: 2022, Heat Waves by Glass Animals. So
0: I'm less familiar. I'm less familiar. I'm thinking Heat Wave, Martha and the Vandellas from, I believe that's the 1960s. I'm less familiar. (laughs) 1993, though, Elizabeth Chim, the Jays win the World Series. Montreal Canadiens win the Stanley Cup.
3: In my year, Roberta Bondar was the first Canadian female um, astronaut in the International Space
2: Station. And the top song of my birth year is I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston.
0: Oh, yeah. The wins keep coming for you, Elizabeth Chim. (laughs) That is a huge win. Sonia, what's your... Birth year song it's when doves cry by prince but i would take the number two what's love got to do with it by (laughs) tina turner Mm. i would take i would prefer
3: okay mine is end of the road boys to men
0: now we know where we are in time thanks to the music yes
2: i love how none of us are actually trying to talk about the things that laura discussed because (laughs) she explains them so well we have nothing to add to it so we're just doing pop culture references here
0: Exactly. Any conversation with Laura is filled with insight. Did you have a takeaway?
3: I think it was just interesting to hear about SARS specifically, because I was trying to compare it to when I was younger, that sort of the, the health emergency that was happening. And I was comparing it to right now. The children in schools, the much younger generation that was living through COVID, how they will think about COVID in the future. Because for me, I, I thought back to it. I'm like, well, yeah, I remember, you know, going to get our vaccine. Like we stood in line and like a whole thing happened, but it didn't impact me as much. But I feel like anybody who was in that sort of like elementary school timeline will probably think about it a lot more.
0: And it was kind of comforting to hear that Laura said she was shocked with how infectious it was that folks like her who study this all the time were surprised by just how much it transmitted and how quickly it did because they hadn't really seen something like this before which is comforting because we've never had to deal with something like this before it's good to know that the scientists also were learning so many new things not just the regular everyday person like us